The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, we ring in the new year and finish out our discussion of 2021 books with Christopher Rocchio and the contributors to Sword and Planet. And we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Happy New Year and welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. We're excited for all that 2022 holds and we are sure that you are too. But first, we've got one final piece of 2021 business to talk about. The Christopher Rocchio edited anthology, Sword and Planet. These are all new stories of science fantasy in the Burroughs and Brackett vein by some of today's best writers of science fiction and fantasy, some of whom join Christopher and guest interviewer Josh Hayes to discuss the book. But first, the news. It's a new year and the January hardcover and trade paperbacks are in. First up, Stolen Skies by Tim Powers. UFOs in the skies of Los Angeles. With flying saucers on the move at the giant rock monolith in the Mojave Desert, grayling sightings at a cultist temple in the Hollywood Hills, a monstrous alien apparition in the Los Angeles River, and a harrowing midnight visitation on a boat off Long Beach Harbor, aliens seem to be invading Southern California. But what kind of aliens and to what purpose? One thing former Secret Service agent Sebastian Vickery knows is that whatever their purpose, it can't be a good one. Now Vickery has learned something about UFOs that he shouldn't have, and naval intelligence, desperate to silence him, orders his old partner, Agent Ingrid Castine, to trap him. But Castine risks her life to warn Vickery, and now they're both fugitives, on the run from both the U.S. government and agents of the Russian GRU Directorate which has its own uses for UFO intelligence. With the unlikely aid of a renegade Russian agent, a homeless Hispanic boy, and an eccentric old flat earther, Vickery and Castine must find an ancient relic that may banish the alien species. The only problem is making use of the relic could also result in the destruction of Southern California in the process, up to and including agents Vickery and Castine. Next up, we have the debut novel of Michael Merceau with The Deep Man. Break the Shaper's Hold and Free the Stars. The galactic imperium of the myriad worlds slumps into centuries of decadent peace, enabled by a flood of advanced technology from the mysterious non-human Shapers. Among the great families, the only the once mighty clan of Sinclair Maru remembers the maxim of the warrior emperor Jung the first, ready to defend the Imperium from any threat. Stubbornly clinging to the honor code, family prodigy Saif Sinclair Maru finds himself in command of an outmoded, under-equipped frigate of the Imperial fleet. With spies and assassins on every side, trusting only in the considerable skill and the bizarre competence of his companion Inga, Saif must complete his mission, restore the greatness of his family, and uncover the chilling plot to extinguish humanity's light from the galaxy. 
And finally, Generation Warriors by Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Moon. The lightning pace conclusion to the Planet Pirates trilogy. Starship Captain Sassanac and her generation's younger grandmother, Dr. Lunzi, are taking the fight to the heart of the Fed Central. Together, and with some help from their friends, they'll end the tyrannical rule of pirates and slavers once and for all. Joining them in their quest are Fordelaton, who is dying of a mysterious poison, Dupayanil, who is exiled, and Igar, who tries to prove himself. A classic novel from SF master Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Moon. That Stolen Skies, The Deep Man, and Generation Warriors. And that's it for the news. Now for Josh Hayes' discussion with Christopher Rocchio, DJ Butler, and R.R. Verity about the new anthology, Sword and Planet. Hello and welcome back to this week's interview. I am Josh Hayes and today we're going to be talking about the new anthology Sword and Planet edited by Christopher Rocchio. Uh, we have Dave Butler here with us today and also Ronnie Verdi. Uh, all three contributed stories uh, and then uh, Christopher put them all together and edited them and made the collection what it is. Uh, I had the opportunity to read through uh, a bunch of these stories um, and the uh, variety of, of character and setting was awesome, but also the tone of the set, the, the stories was very different for uh, the majority of them. And, and I found that really um, interesting and kind of refreshing because a lot of times you'll have collections like this and they'll all feel the same and they'll, they'll all kind of carry the same theme throughout and uh each one of these stories was different and um unique and and i found that really cool um so christopher the this this collection is is kind of your baby can you tell us a little bit about it and kind of how it came to be yeah so i used to be a junior editor at bain uh i i wrapped up doing that back in may of uh, of this year and um I had done, I think, five other anthologies because one of the things I'd done for Bain was help co-edit a bunch of uh, anthologies, either uh, all new stuff or, uh, you know, reprints, things like that. And after doing five uh, with either Tony Daniel or Hank Davis, I was like, can I please, you know, do one on my own? You know, finally actually get to pick what the stories are about. Right. It was either, you know, Tony or Hank were the ones who had the ideas and I was really pushing paper for them. Uh, which I immediately went right back to doing after this book because I got I got two more uh, in, in in production, and um, I wanted to do uh, the exact opposite of what Bain usually does. Bain's very well known for its its hard science fiction, its military science fiction, and I wanted because uh, I've always loved uh, you know the uh, the John Carter Edgar Rice Burroughs stories. I always loved Lee Brackett and and uh, and just the sort of more fantastical end of science fiction, right? Which used right. to be. You know, they used to kind of call it Sword and Planet. It used to just be kind of, you know, this sort of weird Conan in space kind of genre that that kind of dropped off or turned into uh, what we call space opera these days. So there's uh, stuff in this book that ranges from more, you know, on the, the Dune Star Wars end of the spectrum and then stuff that's, uh, you know, right down to the sort of classic uh, John Carter feeling kind of space, you know, swashbuckling adventure kind of stuff. And and I just I really wanted to do something different and to try and get some uh, some different folks in and uh, 
and that was uh, fortunately uh, sounded like a good idea to Tony. And so uh, we got we got rolling with it. And this is uh, my sixth Bane uh, short story anthology. Oh, fantastic! And what was uh, when you went out to? Did you seek out these authors? Were they recommended to you uh, from other people at Bane? Had you edited them before? How did the how did you group them together? Uh, so it's it's usually a bit of both, right? With in doing anthologies for Bane, they're always you know there's a there's a, a tendency to try and pull some of the Bane mainstays. So there's some familiar names for longtime Bane readers. Jody Lynn uh, Nye's got a story in here. Susan R. Matthews, uh, Dave of course uh, has a story in there as well. But then I have some friends from you know other parts of publishing because uh, my my main series uh, that I'm most known for, the Sun Eater books, published over at Daw because uh, I ended up. Uh, in a weird situation where I've had these sort of two, you know, uh, identities professionally, I, you know, worked for Bain, published by Daw, uh, which is a long story. Uh, and so I knew some, I knew some folks, uh, knew some folks from that. I knew some folks who were, you know, indie writers, uh, like, like Ronnie at the time, although Ronnie has a, has a tour deal coming up. Uh, and, uh, you know, things, uh, so I wanted to bring in folks from, from different, you know, parts of, uh, of the industry that I knew. Uh, and so uh, some of that, and then there were a couple folks, um, that were uh, just recommended to me because I was trying to think of other writers. Uh, Simon R. Green, uh, who wrote his first Deathstalker story in I think 30 years for this book. Nice. Uh, really, really, you know, kind of awesome. Uh, was someone that Tony Weisskopf's like, have you thought about Simon? Right? Because we just picked him, Bane had just picked him up to do uh, some like urban fantasy stuff. And he had this old, you know, face, space fantasy story uh, series that fit the, uh, fit the bill precisely. So I uh, asked him and he was, uh, delight to work with. And I, I'm trying to think who else, but there were a couple others that, that were Tony's suggestions. Uh, so I went and reached out to them, but it was mostly uh, folks I knew either from Bain or elsewhere. Very cool. Uh, and one of those authors, uh, Dave Butler, uh, submitted his story, Power and Prestige. Um, uh, this story um, really caught me off guard from the opening line and <laughs> I loved it. As soon as I read that opening line, I stopped and wrote it down because I was like, that is probably the craziest opening line of any short story or any story for that matter that I've ever read. Uh, and it, it's the, I, I, the, the character that I, I grew to just completely love, uh, um, Munahim, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, amazing. Uh, tell us a little bit about this story and kind of where it came from. Uh, yeah, so this is an Indrajit uh, and Fix short story. There, there is one to date, one Indrajit and Fix novel out. Uh, it's called In the Palace of Shadow and Joy. It's a Bane, Bane novel. Um, but there are a number of short stories. And this is um, the, the setting so, uh, so it's interesting. Maybe to kind of connect to some of the things Christopher was saying about Sword and Planet. You know, it's a, it's a, a very, um, it's an idea that catches up a, a wide range of stories, right? Including, yes, John Carter, but also real literary sci-fi. Oh, you can't see it because the green. There we go. Uh, Gene Wolfe, right? Uh, very much kind of Sword and Planet, uh, or you know, Jack Vance's Dying Earth. Uh, which are, you know, uh, and Gene Wolfe's kind of at the very literary end. Jack Vance is maybe sort of partway along that line. John Carter at the other end, very pulpy. Uh, Energy and Vic's stories are set in a future Earth. Uh, although no one, no one talks about it as a future Earth. They don't know it as Earth. They're unaware of our history entirely. 
uh, and and the setting therein is a an old decadent city which is inhabited by a proverbial thousand races of man mm. and uh, this is post again history of which the characters are unaware but it's post a gene war in which nations and uh, corporations created uh, various uh, species of super soldier to fight each other right so uh, as so- they do as as they do so uh so so it looks sort of like star wars like most Eisley, right like most Eisley, a wretched hive of scum and villainy but now blow that up to be a metropolis uh and you know that's a place where you can walk into a bar and there's a guy with a walrus head you know next to a guy whose head is bent like a hammerhead shark and a guy you know what whatever there are a thousand races of man right yeah and uh Indrajit and Fix are a pair of, um, they're both very smart. It's not right to call them intellectuals. It's not exactly right. Indrajit is a heroic poet of a dying people. He's like the guy who's memorized the Iliad and the Odyssey, but there's no one to pass it on to. So he's sort of potentially the last, and he's come to this big rotting city to try and find a successor. And, and no one wants to pay him for the epic of his people. So he's making a living uh, basically as a thug. Uh, and his fellow thug is a is a a very pragmatic sort of intellectual, uh, an autodidact named Fix, who uh, is in love with a married woman and trying hard to make a financial success of himself to uh, to impress her. And what uh, power and prestige does is it introduces. So in the book, they become colleagues. They meet up and they they form a a jobber company. The city, Kish. Is, uh, is run by seven great families, uh, which are descended from the seven principal servants of the last emperor who seized control when he died. So they have names like the Lord Chamberlain, the Lord Archer, the Lord Stargazer, because these are the hereditary titles dating back to that ancestor. And, uh, and the city is all run like Roman tax farming. <laughs> so the these families bid the single permanent institution of government is an auction house these families bid for the right to do things and they turn around and hire mercenaries to do them so it's a city and it, this is thousands of years old so there it's a it's an archaeological tell it's built on layers of previous city so it's this city built on a dungeon run by mercenaries um and Indrajit and fix in book one form up and uh they are mutually victims of a kind of a scam uh and uh they form up and create a job or company to to make a make their way as as mercenaries power and prestige is is uh, the first introduction of an additional character into this company uh and his name is munahim and it is the, it is the uh it's the Ugaritic pronunciation, the, or vowel pointing of the name Menachem, uh, and he has the head of a dog. Uh, <laughs> and the first line is something like, I feel I should warn you, I may eat my own feces. Uh, yeah, like right? <laughs> it's so great. Yes. Uh, so the... I, I got the the swashbuckling in like you're saying the the Moss Eisley feel of it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, the I could tell that it was um, a an add-on to a different story or or some a, a smaller part of a bigger story because it, I mean the the world building is phenomenal. It's it's huge, but the the learning curve is very high. 
um, trying to, to work your way through. Um, the twist at the end was very cool how they um, used their each individual skill set to kind of determine kind of what was going on. Um, was that something on purpose that, that you needed the, the, the Munahim character to kind of weave that together? Or was that just something that came just fluidly as you wrote the, the story created it? Um, you know, someone asked me recently to teach them how to outline a short story. And I said, I don't know how <laughs> Yeah, can outline a novel. Right. I don't know how to outline a short story, a short story. I, you know, it may have two or three chunks, but it fundamentally comes to one point. Um, so, uh, so I, I sort of figured it out as I went, but I knew that, uh, Monachim had to do something to add value. Right. Right. Because, uh, these, these other two characters are very strong personalities. They're always kind of quibbling about various points uh indrajit is an oral poet he's not actually literate he thinks literacy was a mistake uh that's one of the running arguments um he's also he's a he's a blotchy and he has his eyes are on the side of his head and he has a bony nose ridge and uh fix is constantly comparing him to a fish to his <laughs> irritation and that's another kind of running uh uh piece of dialogue it just never lets up this constant argument between them and so for them to take on a, a third person, regardless of whether that's their plan or not, and for that not just to be, um, you know, a notional character, then he has to actually add something. Right. Uh, and so, yes, he had to kind of come in and and uh, and and, uh, and and prove his worth. Um, it's a mystery. It's a it's a murder story, and it's about academic uh rivalry uh and uh the way academics sometimes impede the flow of information hoard information to screw each other and advance their own interests and 100 that's exactly that's the that's the in a, in a sentence pitch for that story it's great um and you said so there's a novel out do you do you have plans to to kind of continue that story in the future novel that is the next thing that I should write, uh, and the working title is Under the Paper Souk, and uh, I don't actually have a contract, so we'll see what happens when I present the book, uh, but fingers crossed. Very cool. Uh, well, I loved it. It was a great story. Thank you. Uh, so, Ronnie, your contribution um, is a broken sword. Oh, no, that's not right. I got to skip that. Is a knight luminary. And yeah. um, uh, the the feel that I got from your story was very, uh, and I think it was done on purpose, a very knight, Knights Templar kind of um, uh, hierarchy and, and setting. And I loved the, um, I love the characters for their knowledge. I, I, I really, really enjoy reading um, characters that are really competent, like supremely confident. But I also love stories about searching dark, sinister stations and there's a mysterious alien presence. I love that. Like that out of all the sci-fi stories that I've read, I think that particular trope or setting uh, as a story device is one of my favorites. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, A Night Luminary, kind of where it came from. Is it part of a, uh, a bigger series? Uh, and do you uh, how did you come up with the idea for it? 
Um, it's not part of a bigger series yet. However, it's part of something I've always been conceptualizing. I grew up on actually more space fantasy than any other genre. Um, born in the 90s, and I was very influenced by Kevin J. Anderson's work on Star Wars, obviously. Yeah. Um, growing up into Karen Travis's work when she expanded it with Republic Commando, the whole history of like the military universe within Star Wars, but they still have space magic in this universe. And then, of course, around the same time in the 2000s, Halo comes out, which is, again, another great military SF. And you have this elite group of people with Spartans and the Covenant come in and out sort of a space fantasy. Like, yes, they have technology, but the way they treat it is very reverential. You have the forerunners and there's this mysticism behind it. And then Mass yeah. Effect comes out a few years later, which is, again, space magic and Reapers and biotics. Right. I love that universe. And it feels like my whole life's kind of been culturing me to write something like this at some point. Um I've always had a love for the Knights Templars. This was sort of supposed to be like this band of brothers and the main character Novak is a trainee. He's lived his whole life uh, on this magical station called the Arbiter, which has, it's a time traveling and space traveling city that they found abandoned and humanity started living on it. And slowly it's almost like nuclear radiation, except positive. Uh, some people yeah. start developing magical abilities. He's been around it for so long and training to be what they call luminaries, these knights who can manifest something called dark light, which is the magical stuff that comes out of the station, except he's never had his spark or his flash of it. And he's on his last mission to kind of see if he'll, he'll finally have this flashing, this moment where he unlocks it. And as you go through the story, you find out whether or not that happens. Um, as for the, the space station thing, that was a device I first came across of in Halo Reach. Um, which I absolutely loved where the new group of Spartans is on there. They think they're just doing a routine check. Like why did this telemetry station go down and it's first contact, which I figured what better to introduce this trainee to. He's got this group of three hardened soldiers. They're top of the top special forces. They've already been through it. And instead of them being hard on the kid, they're actually here to help him out. That's why he's with them. This is the best chance and team he has for support. Um, I've always loved the idea of having the SF guys have that brotherhood and help each other, not necessarily be, showing them in a negative light, which does happen sometimes in space military. Yeah. I want it to be real brotherhood um, and how things get paid forward. Cause I've actually benefited from that a lot in my life in the writing industry. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of older authors pass things forward, opportunities, mentorship, and it just felt like a natural fit for this story. Uh, so like we mentioned the kind of the mysterious setting and, and mm -hmm. uh, I liked the, um, the visuals that the, the, the later half of the story. I don't want to give anything away, but the 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 visual that I got at the the back uh, third of the story was just amazing. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Um, I the gosh, I well, seriously go read this story if not to just to see the visuals at the 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 last third of the story. They're amazing. Um, but I thought also that and correct me if I'm wrong because I could be. But with a, a story like this, you have, you know, the first contact, you have the, the fighting and, and the camaraderie that you have with the, the military guys, you have uh, all of the cool action, but then on the, 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 uh, the underside of it is, is really kind of a question of morality when they're talking about a lot of issues uh, throughout the story. Um, is that something that you wanted to like consciously touch on or was it just kind of a byproduct of what the characters were doing in the story? I think it's both. I definitely knew with the main character, Novak, I wanted him to kind of question what I meant to be a soldier, uh, especially yeah. in this particular environment and bred to, for magic, bred to also be humanity's first line of defense against this alien hive mind. But then what does it mean to be a soldier to your fellow soldiers? Because there's a scene where he has to make a very hard choice between, uh, without spoiling it, being told what to do, which is right in that situation, but then also what he feels he needs to do as a person and a brother to somebody else. Right. Uh, 
And I felt like everyone else's reactions around that is where it manifested. I designed that choice from the get-go. So I know he had to make that and have those questions, but how the characters reacted to it and then came together to get to the ending was more natural when I got there. That wasn't planned. I thought that the, the way that he made his choice, um, you know, you see a lot of uh, stories where, you know, a, a character gets the, the ray gun or, or the, 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 the laser sword. And that's, that's what gives them the courage to kind of go and charge forward and do the crazy thing. Um, in this particular story, Novak decides to go without any of that. And then right. uh, th I thought that was a really awesome choice uh, narrative wise. And it shows a lot of a character to have him make that choice, knowing that he doesn't have any of these abilities, knowing that he doesn't have an easy button, uh, but he decides to go and do it anyway. I thought that was really cool. Thank you. Uh, and so you say you, you don't have, it's not part of another series, but are you working on a longer work uh, as this? Cause I think fleshing this out, I think would make a, a fantastic novel, even a series. Oh, thank you. Believe it or not, I have I, I haven't turned it into a novel or anything. I just after I wrote it, it became wonderful world building. I actually bought several game manuals because it's one of the ways I love to learn for the history of Halo, like art books, concept art. I actually bought into Destiny, which I realized after writing this, this is, has a very Destiny feel uh, for mm. people familiar with that franchise. And I bought all the concept art from that because it is genuinely something that feels natural to me. I think having grown up with this stuff for 30 years, but never writing it until now. I right. think there's a key part of me that wants to turn this into something. It might work better as a video game, a comic. I don't know on that, but I will be pursuing this hopefully down the line if I can find a buyer. Definitely. Uh, definitely. I, I, I think it was great. And, and you could tell that, you know, you, your excitement and passion for the project comes through not only in just how you're talking about it, but definitely in the, in the, in the presentation and writing of the story. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so let's circle around to uh, Christopher and your contribution to your uh, collection. Um, I, I assume that this is is part of your Sun Eater uh, universe. And when I when I when I said at the beginning of the interview that I, I felt that the the feel of the stories was really really different uh, because you go from like Dave's. Uh, kind of fun swashbuckling story and then you know you read through the rest and you have uh, you know Ronnie's kind of feel-good story and then you get to Christopher's and man uh, what a great story first of all uh, I, I haven't read the your other son either books although the first book has been on my audible TBR for like a year and I have no idea why I haven't listened to it but after reading the short story I immediately queued it up and uh, I'm going to burn through it because your prose is phenomenal, but also the, the, just the dark visuals in this story were crazy, oh, uh, but I'm also nice. interested in, in the, the overall story. Now the rest of what's going on. Uh, so tell us about this, tell us about the, the short story and kind of where it came from. Yeah. So, uh, so it ended up being a novella, which was not the original plan. Uh, but I had, uh, I had to, I had to panic a little bit because I think three writers dropped out. Uh, and I, I had been putting off writing my story because I knew when the actual due date was. And of course, I'd given the authors a much earlier one because uh, uh, you know how authors are, right? Uh -huh, like, uh, yes. Like, yes. I know it's two months late, but right. like, actually, it's not because I lied to you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I knew uh, that I needed to make up a shortfall here because a bunch of a bunch of writers dropped in. It was getting a little too close to ask people to come in. 
Um, you know, saying, can you do this in a month is probably a bit tight, but I, I knew what I was doing. So it, it grew into this uh, much larger story than I'd intended uh, originally. And um, I wanted to do uh, something a little bit different because I had just finished writing the fourth book in the series. And that had focused very much on uh, on the aliens in the Sunny Universe, a species called the Cielsen, who uh, they're sort of like... Uh, um, like space Huns, right? They are the barbarians at Rome's gates, and and they uh, they don't they don't settle down. They don't have planets. They just uh, they they steer their fleets, which are usually centered around you know hollowed out moons, uh, to planets, and they'll raid them because they are uh, exclusively carnivorous. And uh, and if they can find a planet full of meat, that's great. Uh, otherwise, they have to eat one another. And uh, <laughs> despite which, they try to be civilized, uh, which is a very uh, fine line to walk. And, uh, and so I wanted to look instead uh, at um, at humans doing some bad stuff uh, as well, uh, just to, you know, just to balance the scale. Right. And um, and so I wanted to do that. I also wanted to go back in uh, back in the series a little bit because um, I had uh, said goodbye to some characters that I wanted to revisit and, and, and things like that. Uh, and so this is set actually between the second and the third books in the series, despite which I've tried very hard more to tease things than to spoil them. Uh, yeah. So a new reader can probably come in and do just fine. Uh, I hope was your experience with it. Uh, there's maybe some stuff where you're like, what are they? What are they talking about? But uh, you know, again, hopefully more in a teaser than a, a spoiler. Well, I think of yeah, and a lot of that stuff I think you can get definitely through the context of what's going on, definitely for sure. Um, well, that's that's good because that was sort of what I was was hoping would uh, would happen. But it uh, it's the story of uh, my main character in the series, named Hadrian, and this is his first mission, uh, having been made a knight of the Empire. Uh, so we've got another knight, uh, sort of like you know Ronnie's story. Uh, but uh, he has been sent to deal with uh, one of these Sielsen incursions, uh, and it picks up right after the battle is over, basically. So it's really about the mop up operation. Uh, and uh, they're looking at this, you know, the city that's been devastated, and uh, so they have to, you know, uh, deal with the fallout of the battle, and who's really responsible for, you know, what, right, uh, you know, what was done by aliens, uh, what what are we looking at that might be human war crimes, right, like, where's, right. where's the, where's the line there, and sorting that out, and it's really for Hadrian, it's about coming into some actual authority, and some, and the responsibility that comes along with that. Um, and about trying to negotiate uh, political pressures and, and things like that with regards to social classes and, you know, like, uh, it, you know, is this nobleman going to get away with certain things, right, or, and is that something I really can live with, and, and he has to sort of negotiate all of that while also still fighting aliens and, you know, dealing with all of this stuff at, at once, so um, there's a lot, there's a lot going on, but uh, it was a really, really fun one to write, um, I, I had, uh, for as dark as it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you what the uh, I don't know that this can give any way, but the, the the slaughterhouse scene, uh, reading that was just, I mean, wow. I I've read you know I've read uh, Joe Abercrombie and I've read some other some, some grim dark and and some some definitely uh, uh, colorful um, descriptions, but wow, that I mean I, I felt it. Uh, yeah, it, it was. Uh, 
that that was I always worry that I'm not going uh, far enough when I write these scenes, and usually the feedback is the other way, uh, which <laughs> I, I guess is encouraging. Uh, but it's important to me too, right? That despite that, that there is a, a strong moral core to at least to Hadrian, right? Because he yeah. has a very strong sense of what he he feels is right. And because I, I don't like a lot of grim, dark stories, as, as dark as this is, I don't like, I guess it's the grim part I object to. Right. Uh, because uh, the world, the real world is awful, but there's a lot of good in it still. And, and focusing on that against the dark background has always been sort of my, my, uh, my ethos, I guess, with the series, because there's obviously some terrible stuff that happens. But um, trying to keep the humanity in in our heroes has been important to me uh, against all of that, whether or not it's aliens or other people that are are, are causing the problems. Um, and so um, and so that was, I think, part of what made this one really uh, really fun to write because it was a very there was a, there was this moral question that was really central to the story, which is you know like like what do I do right and right. how do you how do you sort out uh, you know, justice and mercy and, and and all of these things. And that's all very new for the character too, which I, writing uh, him much further in his life at this point and to go back and, and look at that when it's new was a nice uh, change for me. That was really what I wanted to do with the story. Well, so I, that brings me to two questions then. Uh, the first one is, well, I, I you mentioned the, the moral decision, but there was, there's actually a couple going on at the same time. And, and I thought that the, the, the combination of those, you know, do we have the, the power to, to bring those responsible to justice and uh, was what they did appropriate or not appropriate and can't, do I have the authority to do? I thought all of that weaving together was phenomenal. Um, and then second, uh, you said it comes between books through two and three mm-hmm. um, for people that may have read the series um sometimes it's really hard to write a prequel and then keep the suspense, uh, keep the suspense up. Cause you know, you know, the, the character's not going to die or anything like that. So, so how was the, how was it going through writing this story uh, presenting it in such a way? Because I, I, I mean, I never read the other ones obviously, but I was still intrigued and pulled through and really curious about what was going to happen. Um, was it hard to, to, to keep that dramatic thread in this story, putting well, it between those other two? To do the second question first, uh, not particularly because I, I I've sort of set myself this problem with the whole series. So yeah, uh, for those who don't know, the the Sun Eater opens and the first page, Hadrian is writing. All of this is his memoir, right? It's all first person. It's all written well after the fact, and yeah. he tells you on page one that he's the guy who ended this war and he wiped out the aliens. Um, you know, the war is over. Um, I I took care of it, and as a consequence, a lot of uh, people were caught in the crossfire. But I did what I think I had to do. Right. And uh, and he's not apologizing for it. And he's not really, you know, even asking the readers to make up their own mind. He's just making his case. And so in doing that, I've given away a piece of the ending. Right. Yeah. We know we're going there. And that makes it a very different story because most most stories. Right. People are reading to figure out what happens on the next page. Right. And that's and that's great. Right. Um, but if all you've got in a story is surprise, then it doesn't reread as strongly, right? Because you already know the twist and it takes, True. it might take 30 years to forget the twist, to, you know, read it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's some, you just, you, you can't go back. You can't watch Empire Strikes Back again, you know, the same way, right? <laughs> you're like, what? Yeah, you, you're never getting that feeling back. And so yeah. if you you give away some of that uh, up front, then the, the question is, you know, not what's happening on the next page. It's 
why is what's happening on this page happening and what's going to happen on the next page? Because when Hadrian tells you all this stuff about himself, he then cuts to being, you know, basically a, you know, kind of a, a soft college kid who wants to go meet the aliens and make friends. Right. Right. Uh, and that's where the book start, the book series starts. And, and he has to be, he has, to, he has a lot of unlearning to do uh, as, as we all do. Right. And a lot of, you know, learning. And so with going back and doing sort of an interquel, I guess is the word, um, I still, you know, I still have, you know, the end in sight, right? So in a lot of ways, I'm sort of doing the same thing I'm always doing, which is writing with, um, in, in a way that the narrator has his eye on the end, right? Because he's looking at all of these, um, these war crimes that he's, he's trying to mete out justice for in the light of, I've also done some really bad stuff, right? Yeah, and, true, okay. You know, right. he's, he's trying to deal with his hypocrisy, maybe? Is it hypocrisy? What's the difference, right? And he, he's got a little bit of Hamlet in him in the sense that he's always asking these questions of himself, uh, you know, and, and he doesn't like to answer them because it's maybe too hard. And so um, I think what's cool about that is it leaves a lot of latitude for the readers to try and figure it out themselves. And to make up yeah. their own own decision, because I'll have uh, readers who come with me, uh, come to me, and they'll make a, a very strong pronouncement about how they feel about something, and it is absolutely not how I feel, right? And <laughs> right. I think that's one of the advantages uh, that literature has over, I don't know, uh, an essay, right? Is that you can you could have a thing say it, what it says and its opposite at the same time in a story, right? Because you've got characters who feel differently and readers will come to you and from different places right and they will yeah. uh maybe identify with uh you know certain set of characters over another in a way that the author never expects right like i don't think george lucas was anticipating uh, a lot of people who thought the empire were you know the coolest characters in the movies right right, right. Uh, and yet like a lot of star wars fans would much rather uh you know play with the tie fighters and the x-wings and like that's cool right uh you know it's it's science fiction it's fun and, and if, if that's how people feel about these things that's interesting i'm definitely uh, like I, a vader fanboy yeah yeah it's it's the red lightsaber you know yeah uh, oh yeah yeah uh, <laughs> and uh and so like i'll get readers comments like you know the aliens are really cool and i'm like you like the man-eating vampires <laughs> from space so, okay uh cool you know nice um and so um and so I've always sort of like tried to step back and let the reader kind of bring themselves to the story. And so that that's another facet here too, is I try not to be too, you know, didactic with, with things, uh, although Hadrian is, but like, you know, uh, and I forgive me, I forget the first question. because Oh, I was just layering about. the, uh, the moral choices, la layering the different aspects of right or wrong in the story. Oh, I will touched on that a little bit, but it's, yeah. I mean, like nothing simple. Right. Right. And if it, if it is, then it's, you know, it's, it's not a great story. Right. I would rather, uh, I would rather something people need to chew on uh, a little bit because then it stays with them longer because you can only write so many words. Right. Right. And then if you can give, uh, give people, you know, a question or a feeling or something that they can, they can take with them, then your story is actually longer than your story is which I think is, is important. So I, I, I try to have that extra sort of dimension all the time, just because life's like that. And I want my readers to, you know, take something with them. So. Excellent. Uh, so the book is out now, correct? It's uh, I think the last thing I looked was the seventh. 
I think it comes out at 25th of January. So yes, so it is available now in ebook form, but due to the uh, uh, global medical situation, shall we say, um, the paperback has been delayed. There's, you know, there's a paper sh uh, shortage. I think it's been pushed back until January. But for those of you inclined to uh, do your reading electronically, you can check it out today. Okay, yeah, I do see the January 25th date on the on the paperback side, um, and the, the Kindle there after that in theory. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. So if you're listening to this, the the ebook version is available now, and potentially the the paperback version will be available at that time. Uh, Christopher, you've you've put together a fantastic collection here. Well, thank you. I couldn't have done it without Dave and Ronnie and everyone else. Um, I think uh, I, I, sometimes uh, anthologies kind of get uh, kind of get forgotten about it as, as uh, places where uh, authors can do some of their best work. And some I love doing short stories. I used to not be a short story guy, but I love doing short stories because you get to do a whole bunch of different things that you really can't do in a novel. Um, and and I think you know from the reader's aspect of you know getting this many different kind of stories in, at one place is, is a, a really fun experience as well. So um, anyway, Christopher and Dave and Ronnie, thank you guys for coming on the show and talking about your stories. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And now another installment in our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Sapple. One. Tyler looked around the extremely empty personnel bay 41816B of the Glaucod Commercial Transfer Station 1 in annoyance. His eyes lit on what was clearly a hypernode terminal, and he walked over. He'd been looking forward to savoring the moment of his first steps onto a space station, but since his local guide was conspicuously missing, it would have to wait. Connect to Falador Wathayet, please, he said. There are 687,000 Falador Wathayets on the hypernet network, the terminal replied. Could you calm his registry number? I don't have a calm link, Tyler said. He should be somewhere on this station. He is probably in a bar and he's probably drunk on maple syrup. Searching, searching. Falalor, Wathayet, 82 Alpha 24 Kilo Zero 01 Hotel November Dash 1. Like I'm gonna remember that, Tyler muttered. Tyler, Wathayet slurred. The background was clearly, as Tyler had guessed, a bar. Hey, man, how's it going? You were supposed to meet me at the ship, Wathayet, Tyler said. Remember? Oh, yeah, man, Wathayet replied. Sorry about that. Hey, just catch a cab over to Kulo's. I'll meet you here. Fine. Tyler said, sighing. Net, I need a cab. There are over. Just pick the closest one and tell me where to pick it up. 
Very well, the terminal replied snippily. Proceed down the corridor to the passageway. That's the hallway on your left until it comes to a bigger hallway since you're a primitive. The cab will meet you there. That will be five credits. Tyler Alexander Vernon, Tyler said. You should have only one of those. Registering. Please obtain a full registration package at your earliest opportunity. Thank you. Have a nice day. The cab turned out to be a floating compartment with seats for two. Small seats for two. It was smaller than a terrestrial twofer car and didn't look as if it should be able to stand upright. Uh, Tyler said, fumbling where he figured the door should be. I don't know how to... I'll open it, the cab said. The entire transparent top collapsed into the rear. Get in. New, are you? Primitive world, Tyler said, sitting down. The top quickly popped back up. Earth, the maple syrup planet? Oh, yeah, heard of that, the cab said. Destination? Kulos, Tyler said. Right, the cab said, pulling out smoothly. Who's that maple syrup guy, Vergen or something? Tyler Vernon, Tyler asked. The cab maneuvered skillfully through some light pedestrian traffic, mostly glatun, but a few other species Tyler didn't recognize, then slid into a compartment like an elevator. The door closed. Yeah, the cab said. You think he meant the Horvath should waste the city? Seems pretty, I don't know, cold. No, actually, I don't think he meant it, Tyler said. There was no sensation, but he was either trapped in a room with an apparently sentient cab, or he was in a very smooth piece of transportation technology. He was banking on the ladder. There were no flashing lights to tell him he was going anywhere, though. Not even a bank of numbers. Just walls and a lack of sensation of movement. He was just saying that so the Horvath wouldn't waste the cities. If he could get them to think the maple sugar gatherers didn't care, that took the cities off the table as hostages. Guess you might be right, the cab said. He sure kept consistent, though. Thank you, Tyler said. I'm Tyler Vernon. Oh, the cab said. Then I guess you'd know. Can I ask a question? Go ahead. Are all cabs AIs in the Federation? I'm not an AI. I'm a replicant program. I just have a set of queries and responses. Sounds like an AI. And if somebody gets outside my programming, I can call Ethelkow, which is the station's AI, to get its help. Happens so fast you wouldn't notice. So, Tyler said. Was that a standard response? Yep, the cab said as the door opened. It was clearly a different passageway since the light was lower, mostly from blown light panels, and the pedestrians were... different. It was amazing how universal a bad part of town could look. Graffiti, it turned out, was another universal. The cab slid out of the compartment smoothly, then started weaving through the pedestrian traffic. 
Someone threw something at it that thunked off the plastic top and left a green, drippy stain. Not the best part of town, Tyler said. Nope, the cab replied. Have to get a wash after this. You're registered on the hypernet banking system. That's five credits. Authorized, Tyler said. Does that work? Yep, the cab said, dilating the top. Have a nice day. Keep your credit chips hidden. But Kulo's is pretty safe. Tyler walked over to the nearest door and looked at the marquee. It was in garish letters, but he couldn't read them, so he wasn't even sure if he was in the right place. Look confident and as if you're not a yokel, Tyler muttered to himself. Open? The door refused to budge. Hey, he said, turning to ask the cab, but it was gone. Damn it, he muttered. He could hear dissonant music from inside and the sound of an occasional yell. Sounded like a bar. Hello? He said, rapping his knuckles on the door. Open sesame? The door dilated and a bipedal lizard, even larger than Mr. Hazelbauer, filled it. The thing looked like a velociraptor with a toothache. Scrockergar, it bellowed. It had to. The door had been soundproofed, and the noise inside was at the nuclear decibel level. What it? Tyler shouted, craning his neck up. The view of the thing's face wasn't much better than the rest. Garagar! The thing shouted back, gesturing inside with a thumb. It even had velociraptor thumbs. Tyler stepped inside, and his ears immediately tried to shut down. The music, if it could be called music, was a series of incredibly loud, apparently random notes with asyncopated pauses. Most of them were near the top of the audible range, so it was possible that there was some out-of-human audibility he was missing. If so, he'd pass. It was a worse experience than the one indoor bagpipe competition he'd attended but only marginally. The crowd was mostly glatun, and they seemed to be mostly using hypercom implants. They'd have to. There was no way to hear. There were a few other species present. Two large purple slugs were drinking something green in a corner, and a giant segmented exoskeletal black and red worm was chugging what looked like a gallon of something that smoked to some shouted comments. At least Tyler assumed the glutton were shouting. They were opening and closing their mouths, and between notes he could pick up some yells. A few more of the giant sauroids were circulating the room, but they seemed to be servers, or security, or both. Ta-er! A glutton shouted at him, clapping him on the back. What they it? Tyler shouted back. He had to assume it was Wathayet. Racist as it might seem, Glatun really did all look the same to him. The Glatun opened and closed his mouth several more times. Tyler could only get a few syllables. It had to be Wathayet, though. I can't hear you, Tyler screamed. What? Tyler grabbed him by the arm and dragged him to the door, which fortunately opened. God almighty! 
Tyler said when they were outside the cacophony. How can you stand it in there? Stand what? Wathay had asked. I couldn't hear a thing, Tyler said. Are all you guys deaf? No, Wathay had said. Oh, you don't have a plant pack. No, I don't have a plant pack, Tyler said with a sigh. Human, remember? Come on, Wathay had said, waving for Tyler to follow. Time to fix that. Uh, Wathay it, Tyler said. I'm not sure that a Glatun doctor would know the first thing about human physiology. I talked to Corey about it, Wathay had said. He said no problem. Who is Corey? Tyler asked as Wathayet took a turn down a service tunnel. A couple of Glatun were just sort of hanging around the tunnel in a very nonchalant manner, like a nonchalant your money or your life manner. Ah, uh, Wathayet. Don't worry, Wathayet said. Everybody knows me. Hey, guys, buddy of mine from Earth, this is the Maple Syrup King. Oh, wow, one of the Glatuns said, surreptitiously putting away his vibro knife. Gosh, it's nice to meet you. You wouldn't happen to have any catch, Tyler said, tossing them a sample bottle of Vermont's finest. They just made it past the scuffle. Turned out the Glatuns had blue blood as well as skin. Wathea, could we please get into some patrolled corridors? We're here, what they had said as a panel opened. Come on in. Tyler had, like most kids, done a paper on the Holocaust in school. His particular paper had focused on Nazi experiments and Dr. Joseph Mengele, the angel of death. The dingy room called back some very unpleasant memories. Same torture rack, Sweeney Todd barber's chair, same... We have ways of making you talk. Light in the face. Same sharp blade things hanging in midair. In this case, literally. The only thing missing was the smell of antiseptic, which, under the circumstances, was not reassuring. Uh, what say it? Tyler said. Don't let this place fool you, what they had said. Corey's the best plant thing on Glaucott Station. Hey, Corey, where are you? In that case, Tyler said, backing to the door, I think I'll take my chances on finding one on the... A four-foot-long black scarab beetle had come bustling out of a back room. It wasn't exactly a scarab beetle, but the resemblance was remarkable, except... Scarab beetles didn't have the big cutting mandibles. Come to think of it, Tyler had seen a few more scurrying around in the corridors. He'd assumed they were dogs or something. Wathayet, the beetle buzzed. Is this the human I get to experiment on? No, Tyler shouted. Yes, Wathayet said. He wants a full plant pack with all the trimmings. True, Tyler said, but I'm not so sure I want it from a beetle. Racism, the beetle buzzed. We exoskeletals are used to it. Man up, Wathayet said. 
The Ananankawamore are the best plant specialists in the western spiral arm. And Cory is the best of all of them. Modestly, I must admit this is true, the beetle said, mounting a small step stool by the barber's chair. Are you going to lie down or must I get the stunner? Look, Tyler said reasonably, you don't know a thing about human physiology. Oh, contraire, the beetle buzzed. I have researched everything your primitive medical profession has discovered, and I will not be going in unaccompanied. Louisa is a specialist in alien physiology. Who is Louisa? I am, a voice in the air said. I am the medical AI. You need not fear, Mr. Vernon. We will first do a very thorough examination of your physiology. As you have noted, we are unfamiliar with human physiology, but we will not be after we have completed our thorough scan of you. Furthermore, any first contact procedures must be reviewed by a medical board for safety and best practice. How long is that going to take? Tyler asked. I'm only on the station. The review will be more or less simultaneous with the examination, Louisa said. The majority of it consists of discussion amongst AIs. We communicate and decide very fast. Is this an invasive procedure? Tyler asked. The examination will not be, Louisa said. The plant procedure? Extremely. But you won't feel it. Anti-infection protocols? Tyler asked. Are you saying I don't run a clean og parlor? Corey buzzed angrily. Not at all. Tyler managed not to glance at the scuff marks on the walls. Just getting a feel for the place. Can we leave it at I know what I'm doing? Louisa said. There is zero danger of infection. I'll admit that Corey could tidy up a bit. It's an atmosphere thing, Corey said. Make this place look like a hospital and I'll lose half my custom. People go to hospitals to die. We call places like that, Tyler was going to say hospices. Good point. You're right, Wathayat. Time to man up. That's the spirit, Louisa said. If you could just climb in the chair and relax. Climb. Yes, Tyler said. Relax? Right, Wathayat said. This is going to take a while and I'm thirsty. See you back at the bar. So when does the examination start? Tyler said a few minutes later. He had to admit the chair was more comfortable than it looked and... He was even getting a bit sleepy. I've been examining you since you came in the door, Louisa replied. I'm about halfway through. Oh, Tyler said, looking around for the scanning equipment. All the icky floating stuff was still floating where it had been. MRI? Distantly, Louisa said. GRI would be closer. Gravitic resonance imaging, some magnetic. 
I've completed a thorough survey of your gross physiology and anatomy and am doing a chemical survey and interaction modeling. You're remarkably similar to the Ngadngad. Not in gross anatomical ways, but in interaction and biochemistry. Most Ngadngad protocols will work perfectly well. By the way, on the subject of sepsis, I see what you mean. You guys are sewers. Thanks, Tyler said. Some of that seems to be evolutionarily interactive, so... Oh, recognized, Louisa said. We won't mess with the important sweets. You actually seem to be missing some, and we'll take care of the interaction problems while we're at it. The question is approaching, what do you want done? I'm not even sure what a full plant pack means, Tyler admitted. Hypernet connection and memory buffer mostly. Corey buzzed. The beetle was busy behind Tyler's head, which was causing him increasing paranoia. In your case, since you didn't have it as a kid, immune system protocols, geriatric stabilization, and since you're clearly pretty screwed up in places, ocular and oral adjustments and implants and a full rebuild on skeletal and vascular systems, that's gonna cost a bit. I can hear just fine. Tyler said. Sure, I got a little high-frequency hearing loss, and so I wear glasses. Do you want to see and hear clearly? Louisa asked. Yes, please, Tyler said. And if you could get rid of that weather knee, I'd appreciate it. No problem, Corey said. 450 will do it. You got the stones? Are we talking 450 or 450,000? Tyler asked. Four million? 450 credits, Corey said. Unless you want to pay me 450,000, which I'm not going to turn down. Uh, Tyler said. What else is available? Because I can afford some upgrades. Ooh, Corey said. Big spender. I like that. We can do a full prosthetic rebuild of your motor system. It cost an arm and a leg is a metaphor, Tyler said quickly. I was thinking more along the lines of, I don't know, what do you have that keeps all my bits attached? Well, if you really don't want the full cyborg package, Corey said. I really don't want the full cyborg package, Tyler said. Can I get a list or something? How long you got, Corey said. There's the athletic package, very popular. Increased muscular density, faster neural twitch response, increased oxygenation systems, hypercooling package, balance systems, very good if you're going to be in zero gravity as well. No nausea, which you guys must get, with that screwed-up oral balance system. That's all nano-based, so once we get past the basic plants, it's non-invasive since you're a sissy. Personal combat package is a big seller around here. I can imagine, Tyler muttered. Skull hardening, rib cage reinforcement, micro-armor sub-integument weave. You do all that with nanites or something? Tyler asked. Nah, gotta do a full strip. Corey said. Don't have the time today. And by full strip, 
Tyler asked. Pull off all the skin and muscle and adipose tissue and do the plant, Corey said. Takes a few hours. Skip, Tyler said. Maybe next time. Whatever, Corey said. Spaceman's package. I'll take the basic package, plus the natural athlete package, thanks, Tyler said. Keep it simple for now. Customer's always right, Corey said. Louisa, where are we at? Authorizations all in place and registered, Louisa said. We can start any time. What does start mean? Tyler said. First, we've got to get a mapper into your neural system, Corey said. You might want to hold your head still. You're going to stick a wire in my head? Tyler asked, starting to turn around. Oh, no, Corey said. Already did that. That's why I said stay still. Right, Louisa, start the mapping. If you could please think about your first memory, the AI said pleasantly. And remember, this is for science, so be honest. For the next 30 minutes, Tyler was put through possibly the most unpleasant experience of his life. Mapping consisted of a long series of seemingly random questions. Think of the taste of blue. Flashes of random memories, muscular twitches, and occasional strange feelings in odd parts of his body. All this culminating in, Ow! And pain mapping complete, Louisa said in a kindly tone. There, that wasn't so bad, was it? Yes, Tyler said, panting. It had felt as if he'd been dropped in hot oil, and even though the sensation was gone, the memory of being dropped in hot oil was still right there, reminding him this is what it feels like to be dropped in hot oil. That was bad. That was bad on toast. Well, it really was, for science, Louisa said. Now that we have one human mapped, it won't be so bad for the rest. We'll just have to check what the differences are, and they'll be right and tight. So, now comes the invasive bit. You'd probably rather be out for this. Permission to put you to sleep? You have to ask for that, but not to put a wire in my head? Tyler said. And put to sleep is an expression on my planet. Anesthetize you so that you'll be unconscious through the rest of the procedure, Corey said. No big deal. We just activate the sleep centers of your brain and then lock you down so you can't wake up while we're rummaging. I've done stranger things, Tyler said, settling in. I think. Okay, go ahead. And we're going out in three, two, one. What happened? Tyler asked. You guys started yet? Done, Corey said. The beetle was across the room cleaning some instruments. That'll be five and a quarter, please. I don't feel any, Tyler started to say. Then the tornado hit. Bagogs, Gargabots, get them while they're... Intergalactic Cosmetics announces Interstellar Super Deal Mart. Interstellar Super Deal Mart. Big Bargo's Bargain Barn. Ah! Tyler screamed. 
His head was filled with images, most of them so alien he couldn't even process them, as well as a string of seemingly random commercials. He couldn't even hear himself think. Crap, Corey said. Louisa, put up a trans block. I forgot he was getting his first node plant. Ah, Tyler said as the cacophony cut off. That was... You are going to have to learn how to control your implants, Mr. Vernon, Louisa said. I'll adjust them so that they are dialed up to high protection. But if you want to be able to fully and openly communicate, you're going to have to learn how to filter. And how exactly do I do that? Tyler asked. It's a skill, Louisa said. The implants work interactively with your brain, so the more you use them for more different purposes, the better you get. But you won't get the full use until you start to grasp the full function of the implants. You are, at some point, going to have to open up. If you can dial them up or down, Tyler said. I don't want people to have remote access. He suddenly realized he hadn't, in fact, opened his mouth. Just thought the query, more like mused on it. I can, Louisa said. Here while you are still a patient and in this room. Otherwise, you are quite well firewalled. Why would anyone use a system that was not secure? The first thing you might want to be careful of is calming when you don't intend to. Great, Tyler said, aloud. I need to use these to buy some stuff. How do I... You'll figure it out, Corey said, dragging him out of the chair. I've got another customer coming in. Go play with them. Have fun. Goodbye. Tyler found himself back in the disreputable service tunnel. Excuse me, what he at first took to be a robot said. You're blocking the door. Sorry, Tyler calmed, standing aside. When the robot went through, it was apparent it either had a thing for glutton hair down its back or it was a glutton cyborg. Tyler walked down the service tunnel quickly. Fortunately, other than a little blood, there was no sign of the nonchalant gentle glutton from earlier. As soon as he reached the main corridor, he looked around for a hypernet terminal, but the only one was clearly broken. Crap, Tyler said. Taxi, he said, thinking at his implants. I need a taxi. Is cab, a voice responded. Voices in my head, great. Hi, I need a cab to take me to my lodgings, Tyler said. I'm not sure my location, but I'm near Kulo's. Dispatched, the voice replied. Two minutes. Thanks, Tyler said. There was a distinct feeling of the communication being cut off. Well... Wow he muttered. That worked. Hey, buddy, can you spare a credit for a veteran? Tyler looked at the rubbish besmeared glutton and shrugged. I can, I just don't have a way to do it, Tyler said. Sorry. That's okay, man, the bum said and wandered off. The more things change, Tyler said as the cab pulled up. It was pretty much the same as the last one, come to think of it, the green stain on the cover. Hey, Tyler, 
the cab said, dropping the canopy. You waiting for me to get stole or something? Not at all, Tyler said, dropping into the cab. Where to? The cab asked, pulling out without waiting for the information. I've got it here somewhere, Tyler said, pulling out a piece of paper. He cleared his throat. The Gazhazipilhawakaksafik. This is worse than a Hawaiian name. Kawabiyaksalagul. The Gaz, the cab said. No problem. What does the name mean? Tyler asked as the cab pulled into one of the transport elevators. Big, nice hotel, the cab replied. In Glatun? Oh, no, of course not. That's in Ogutterjatted Osifaz Hiduajan. That's enough. They're sort of this arm's main hospitality race. Call him the Ogut. Oh, Tyler said. We really don't know much about the species in this region. We got an initial download from the first Glatun we encountered, but it's so large and so poorly indexed. Google's still working on it. You need to get some implants, the cab said. I just did, Tyler said. I'm still trying to figure out how to use them. You'll get used to it, the cab said as the door to the transport box opened. It whisked out into a corridor that was well-lit and lined with what looked to be upscale shops. Well-dressed glatun and a variety of other species more or less packed it. The cab had to move slowly. In about three minutes, they pulled up before an ornate facade resembling, of all things, the front of a tomb. The gauze, the cab said. That's three credits. Authorized. Tyler said. The canopy popped down, and he climbed out. I guess if I call for a cab, I'm probably going to get you, which is fine. As long as I'm available and not too far off, the cab said. Have a nice day, Mr. Vernon. Two of the big sauroids in a sort of quasi-military uniform flanked the double doors of the hotel. Tyler contemplated them for a second, and the word Rangora flashed into his head. He instantly knew the general outline of their territory in the galaxy, and, as he probed a bit more, their strategic relationship, competitive neutrality, with the Glatun. They were considered slightly less technologically advanced, aggressive, and expansionistic. Individually, within the Glatun Federation, they tended to work in menial jobs that required more strength than smarts. Do you need help with your bags, sir? One of the Rangora asked. Uh, no, Tyler said. They were sent ahead. He'd had to send more than bags. There were no foods known in the Federation that humans could consume. Since the milk-run Gorku Corporation freighter only ran once every 32 days, he had to be prepared to stay a long time so he'd included in cold storage three months' rations. Since the glatun could somehow inhibit any degradation in organic materials, rations meant a very choice selection of foods. He wouldn't be surviving on MREs, but he would have to cook for himself. That was okay, though, because he was a pretty good cook. He was planning on being on Glaucod Station for some time. 
He had to get more information about the Glatun before he could progress to the next stage of his plans. Earth needed Glatun technology, but he wanted to figure out how to learn Glatun technology. He didn't want Earth constantly dependent on the Glatun. The close call over maple syrup had convinced him that Earth needed to be technologically and strategically independent of the Glatun to the greatest possible extent. Not to mention, he was looking forward to kicking some Horvath butt. The same thought had occurred to most Earth governments. But the fact was, until there was more to trade with the rest of the galaxy, he was in the strange position of having more available credit to do something about the disparity than any five Earth governments. And since most of it was banked and traded off-planet, it was remarkably hard to tax. If he had the choice of turning over his credit balance to Washington to do something, or doing it himself, he'd take his chances. Checking in, sir? The Rangora asked, opening the door. Yes, Tyler thought. He thought, ten credit tip and the Rangora tipped his helmet at him. Thank you much, sir. No problem, Tyler said, walking through the doors. Mr. Vernon, a pleasure to have you in the house. The speaker was a meter-long caterpillar. That was about as far as Tyler could get. Unlike caterpillars, it had large, mobile antennae, but it was still more or less caterpillar-shaped, its skin patterned in a wild array of colors. I'm talking to a psychedelic caterpillar. Yes, I am, Mr. Chaposh Yaf Muffab Fexic Chug Thogab Neach Petashash Gutach Zis Linosh, the caterpillar said. Most Sophants call me Chup. Welcome. Thank you, Tyler said. Your room has been prepared, Chup said. If you would follow me. The main lobby was large and ornate. Tyler wasn't sure what most of the metals, woods, and cloth were, but they looked expensive. When he'd gone on the hypernet, he'd searched for a good hotel on Glaucod Station that could handle multiple species. He'd apparently found more than good. He wasn't sure he wanted the expense of staying somewhere like this for as long as he contemplated staying. He could afford it, but he had a lot of stuff to buy and no real idea of the costs. Chup led him to what Tyler figured was an elevator. There was the usual absolute lack of sense of movement, and it opened on a large room. Four rooms, Chup said. Bedroom, bathing room, sitting room, kitchen. Adjustable grav beds. Extensive grav bed in the couch in case you entertain company. Usual suite of entertainment devices. I'm still learning how to use implants. Tyler said, walking across what he presumed was the sitting room to what could be either the bathroom or the bedroom. As he half expected, the door didn't open. Why don't I just leave all the doors open until you're more comfortable? Chup said, dilating the door. The room was a bedroom, and it looked about like any hotel bedroom he'd ever seen, except for the bed, which was... That's sort of odd... Tyler said. The bed appeared to be two pieces of glass suspended in midair. I'm sure you'll find it quite comfortable, Chup said. It's adjusted to your surface gravity, 
The lighting is adjusted to near natural sunlight. And while we had a bit of trouble with some of your bathing arrangements, I think you'll find those in order. Furthermore, we have a cookpot programmed with a variety of earth dishes. If you prefer to use room service or visit one of our several first-quality dining facilities... Thank you, Tyler said. We aim to please, the caterpillar said. We admit that learning the needs of a new species is always challenging, but we do our level best. We were unable to successfully design concubine bots, but no problem, Tyler said, thinking, high tip. Thank you very much, Mr. Vernon, the caterpillar said. If there's anything else. Not that I can think of right now, Tyler said. I'll just relax. Since you are still getting acquainted with your implants and the conditions, Chup said, I can set our AI to monitor. That way, if you need anything, you can simply ask. Nothing, of course, will be released about such monitoring. We are very strict about our guests' privacy. Please, Tyler said, and I will leave you to your relaxation, the caterpillar said, wriggling out of the room. That was another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Josh Hayes for interviewing our guests today and praise, thanks, and gratitude to Christopher Rocchio, DJ Butler, and R.R. Verdi. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.